0: I saw it this week, and I know you've seen it either in yard signs or on bumper stickers. Uh, uh, Jesus is the reason for the season. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I think I can think of another bumper sticker. I think I would like to say, the fall of man is the reason for the season. Don't you think that's catchy? Let me know what you think on that. I don't know if it would catch on or not, but... But theologically, ultimately, that's the case. And of course, that statement, Jesus is the reason, is the answer to the fall. So this week, I want us to look in Galatians 4. This is uh, the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So. These words are words that were spoken, sent by God for Him, for us. So let's give our attention. Galatians 4, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also... When we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But, here's what we want to hear. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as Sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, in these moments, will you enable us to hear from you? Give us ears to hear. We are distracted. Our minds are elsewhere far too often. So, Lord, will you help us speak to our our minds but our hearts? And move us where we need to be. In you we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when it comes to history, there is always the debate. The debate between is history cyclical or linear? And what the debate means, by the way, um, typically out of Hinduism and, and religions that came out of that, Buddhism, Taoism, those kind, they would say it's cyclical. You know, it, it, it'll, it comes around like this. That's what history is. Christianity, Judaism disagrees with that. You see, Christianity and Judaism first said, no, it's going somewhere. You remember last week we, we saw the, the fall of man, and, and then we ended with Genesis 3.15, the promise of the gospel in its first form. And what we see in the rest of Scripture and in history is that cliché, it's His story And it is his story of what happens next and where are we going. And Christianity and Judaism says we are going somewhere. We are going to a a place for a reason. And it's not all cyclical and will continue to be this. But there will be that. And so we have that to look forward to. And we're going to see that today as we we go way back again. But we see God moving with his people. There was, as Mark said earlier, a great delay. We have the fall of man that we talked about last week. And then we find Adam and Eve outside the garden. Genesis 3. Outside the garden, they they had it all, as we said, anything that anyone could have wanted. They had ultimate intimacy with one another in terms of relationship with this beautiful place they had, but most importantly, with God himself, and then they sinned, and so they find themselves outside the garden, and they can't go back. It's not cyclical. They can't go back and undo anything. Instead, what they find is the garden is now guarded. If if they go back, which might have been their inclination, they'll die because of those that were guarding it. And that's what happens when man tries to fix his own plight is it'll end in death. It just it won't work. And so they find themselves in this, you know, from the place of the greatest intimacy with God and with one another to the place of loneliness outside the garden, with the loss of that intimacy. Blaise Pascal uh, made a statement that is oft, quoted some, something along these lines, that there is a vacuum in everyone's heart and so on. Well, it's doubtful he really said that. But let me tell you what he did say that, that fits with that same statement that he said, and it's probably the one that was based upon it, and it was simplified to call it a vacuum in our heart. Here's what he actually wrote. He was a philosopher, mathematician, he said, what else does this craving, this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. So he's saying, you know, the fact that, that, that there is something gnawing inside of man even though a lot of, of people suppress it that though there's something in there, that just proves that at one point it was filled up. And then this is the response. This, this he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss, remember that term, this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite An immutable object, in other words, by God Himself. Now, here's what Pascal was saying: is first of all, there's there's proof that at one point there was that perfect intimacy, and the proof is that that there is a longing for that. But man tries to fill it up with everything else because they don't know what they're missing. But here's what he also basically says. It's not just a little hole we have in our heart. It's not just a little gap we have somewhere in our heart and in our desires. He says it's an infinite abyss. In other words, it's something that it would be hopeless to try to fill with anything else except the infinite And what is the infinite? That's God. So that's the only thing, one, who can fill us. (coughs) Now, once again, last week we had the promise of the Savior in Genesis 3. but, But as they find themselves outside the garden, for them, the answer is, but not yet. So, what happened? Well, there was a promise and a people. Abraham, you move forward through Genesis, and we're not going to go through every book of the Bible, but you move forward through Genesis to Genesis 17. And here's the promise that is made. Abraham is is a, a pagan, he doesn't know anything about God. He's called out of that. And then, not because he deserved it, but by grace, because of God's infinite mercy. He makes this promise to Abraham. My covenant, he says, is with you. And you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. He didn't even have any children at that point. No signs that he would. You won't be called Abram, but Abraham. For I've made you a father of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make you into nations. Kings will come to you. And here's the promise. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and your offspring after you. To be your God. Here's the gist of it. He didn't have to say this, but he did. I'll be your God and you will be my people. You know what that is? That's Genesis 3.15 being worked out. It's next steps in this. It is God's promise, by grace, I will be your God and a God to your children. What a promise. And God didn't have to make that promise. It is the promise of the gospel. He gave them the sign of circumcision, a memorable sign, and a bloody sign that pointed forward to something else. Someday there would be a cleansing by blood. You will see it. Remember that. So in this God is saying it's not over yet. But salvation ultimately is not yet. And then we see the people's reaction. I could go any number of places through the Scripture. We could go to every book of of the Old Testament and prove this point. But just simply from the book of Judges, it says this in Judges 2. In terms of the unfaithfulness of the people. God was always faithful. God's people were often unfaithful. And here's what it says. And the people, verse 11 of Judges 2, of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals, false gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. So he had delivered them, and then they abandoned him. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were among them and bowed down to them, and then they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And then at the end of Judges, it, just, it shows how these things continued to happen. It says at the end in Judges twenty one twenty five In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. And you see the problems. You know what that's pointing out? There's a need for a king. But not just a king. The great king that was coming. It foreshadowed that. In all of this chaos, in all of this sin... Where is God? Is he still working? Well, he's continuing to reveal himself. And that's where, uh, again, you can go to a number of places. I'm just going to list uh, topics, basically, that we see in the Old Testament where uh, God is giving shadows and clues about himself. You know, every one of the things that we have done every Christmas since uh, our, our children were old enough to and I did it with all four of our kids, is that uh, uh, on Christmas Day or whenever we open our gifts, I would write a poem for them with clues. And, you know, when they were little, it had pictures and things like that. And then as they... You know, and it would run them all over the house and outside. You know, they'd say, Dad, do we have to go up to the mailbox, you know, and say, only if you want what's at the end, you know. So they'd, you know, go up to the mail, and all over the place, upstairs and downstairs and all that. And it had these clues, and it would get them to the next clue. And then at the end was their main gift, whatever we considered that to be. You know why they went through all that? Well, it became tradition. By the way, we don't really do that now because our youngest is a sophomore in college. So she, she, she just would say, "I'll just wait here," you know. (laughs) (laughs) But we're going to do with our grandchildren. So Uh, the reason they did that, though, is because they knew there was something at the end, and that's what we see in the Old Testament. Here we see all of these uh, foreshadowing. These clues about what was to come. You have the sacrifices. You have the exodus and God's uh, deliverance of his people. You have the priesthood. But again, pointing to the need for the high priest that doesn't have to do these things over and over again. You have special days and feasts from Passover to the Day of Atonement. You have the tabernacle, the conquest of Canaan, which, by the way, fulfilled the, por- the land portion of the uh, the covenant, the kings the office of prophet, and promises again and again of the coming Messiah and salvation, but none of those actually brought salvation. They pointed to it, and they, they let the people know a little bit more about what it was going to look like and who this one would look like and what he would fulfill and some things they never quite got until the Messiah actually came. All of them showed that it's coming, but it's not yet. But it's coming. And then we get to the end of the Old Testament. And you, you, you read in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, Malachi, At the end, and this is right before 400 years of silence, okay? They had had heard and seen things all the way through. There was about to be some silence. Here's what it says at the end of Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You know, there's a promise. He's still coming. And he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the, the Old Testament ends, some of your, some of your virgins say the, the last word is curse, and mine says utter destruction. You know what that's, that's like? Have you ever left your house in the morning or sometime during the day, and for some reason you said something to either a brother or sister or your husband or wife, and it wasn't really that nice of a thing to say. And I'm not recommending this, by the way, but here's what I'm told by those who have done that. I'm told that... That's not a good feeling because what happens is you keep thinking about that and, and you you know, you replay it in your mind and, and, you know, and then ultimately later you think, why why did I say that as the last thing, you know, and, and so on, but it's in your mind and that's what we have here, isn't it? The last thing before there's this big gap of four centuries of silence, of no more new revelation, not even new promises, the last thing is the threat of judgment. Can you imagine? Is that a lot of time to think on that? Where's it going? And where's God? You remember Apollo 13? Some of you remember Apollo 13. Some of you remember the movie Apollo 13. Either way, it's okay, because it was pretty accurate. Well, in, uh, that was a troubled uh, space launch. They were headed to the moon. Uh, they had trouble all along, various things. Uh, but they get 200,000 miles from the earth and an oxygen tank explodes, and they have to abort the mission. So they turn around and come back, and they've had, they had had a plan for a long time about how to get people back if they ever had to call them back. They hadn't used it to that point. And one of the things that would happen is when they would come in through the atmosphere is there would be a period where they couldn't communicate to the ground and the ground couldn't communicate to them. Do you remember that, those of you that, you know, were around with the the space program? You remember that. And that was kind of a tense time. They expected it, but it still was a tense time. Well, with Apollo 13, because it was an aborted mission, they came in at a different angle, and there was silence for longer. Now, it was only about a minute and a half longer, But that was enough to cause the tension. Here was what what they were thinking. "Is Well, now what? Now what's going to happen? Are we ever going to hear from them? Are they burning up in the atmosphere? Is that why we haven't heard? What's going to happen? Until they got through and they said their first words. And then they heard again. Here we have this gap what's going to happen? We are no longer hearing from God. By his silence, he was saying, not yet. Now, when those words were finally spoken in the Apollo 13, there was celebration because of the fear of what might have happened. This brings us to where we are with the great delay. Why now? Why did Jesus come at that point? Well, it's finally time. Galatians 4, chapter, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. When the fullness of time had come. Finally, after all this big gap of time, it was time. It was no longer not yet. It was okay now. Why? What was going on in God's world what had he in his providence caused to take place that made that the time for him to come? He, it, the, this world was prepared politically, intellectually, and religiously, and really in every way, but I'll just break it down in those three ways. Politically, how the world was prepared when <coughs> Jesus came. And you might say, wait a minute, you mean God works in governments too, even in his providence? Really? Well, Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay? And then Isaiah 40 talks about him who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Here's the point. There is no clearer illustration of how God in his providence, uses an unrighteous government to accomplish his plan than the fact that this was the fullness of time when they were under the Roman government, which was completely pagan and unrighteous. And it shows, it shows the glory of God. It shows the power of God to use that which is the worst to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. So, what was it? Why, why was that good that the Roman government was in control? Well, Roman Empire was in its full glory. There was, in a sense, a unity of mankind. The whole Mediterranean uh, basin was governed by one system of law. Uh, politically, it was Roman. Roman citizenship uh, was a high honor. We even see that with Paul later on. Claiming his Roman citizenship for his protection, and God using that the privileges of his citizenship, there was the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, and what that meant was basically because they'd been taken over the, there was a peace in the known world at that time. Virtually no pirates, so you know travel was uh, uh, pretty easy um, for that day. There was a guaranteed stability. The Roman army was throughout the world. When, when, someone was, when a Roman soldier was converted, the government sent him as a missionary. Not, they didn't know that, but as a missionary to other parts of the world. Over in England, uh, that, that's their view, is that that's how Christianity actually got to England. Um, and speaking of that, you had the Roman roads, you can see those clear up in England, too. Uh, the, the Roman roads that were the best of the day and made travel uh, as easy as possible. It made trade and commerce easy. And so there were people traveling all over the world. And so this, it was the perfect time for the spread of Christianity. The world was intellectually prepared, too. It was under Greek, Greek culture, even though politically uh, the Romans were uh, in control, but the culture of Greece remained. Now, that was important because that meant there was a common language. Uh, It's what we call Koine Greek, and that, uh, while we consider that a blessing, most seminary students consider that a curse because you have to learn Koine Greek. But the good thing was that uh, they they were able to understand and imagine how how good that is to be able to communicate when you go to other areas. You know, that's one of the big challenges of our missionaries now. Some of our our missionaries that go to other countries, it takes them three and four years, and sometimes it's their second term before they're, they're effectively communicating with those they go to. In this day, they could go to any part of the Roman Empire and begin immediately talking and sharing the gospel. How effective was that? And then there was Greek philosophy under under that. Now you may say, well, it seems to me that would detract from Christianity. But what happened was this, and at first glance it would seem like that. In in God's uh, providential wisdom, you had the Greek philosophers, and in their search for truth, uh, for instance, they would say, in terms of dealing with yourself, you have uh, like a Socrates saying, know thyself. You know what the problem with that was? People would say, okay, I'd like to get to know myself. And then they wouldn't like what they found. <laughs> you know, they started looking inside and they said, My, myself is not the answer. And so it left them with more questions rather than less. There was that empty, eternal abyss, and Greek philosophy helped uncover that. It caused a widespread skepticism of unanswered questions. And religiously, they were prepared as well. Uh, The Greeks had every kind of god We have, for instance, and we'll get to this as we're going through the book of Acts after the first of the year, but uh, you have Paul going to Athens and, and using the fact that they worshiped all these different gods and then they had the altar to the unknown God, and he said, This one, this one that you don't know who it is, let me tell you who it is. In God's providence, they were prepared. In terms of the Roman religion, you had the cult of emperor worship. They would declare themselves to be gods. The problem was they were corrupt, and everybody knew it. And then they would die. <laughs> what kind of god is that? And they would be replaced. So their gods, these emperors, were morally unspeakable, and it was spilling out into the world, the, uh, the moral atmosphere. Uh, immorality was open infanticide, they would throw unwanted children into the river. It's documented. And think nothing of it. Seneca, the Roman writer, said, Vice no longer hides itself. It stalks forth before all eyes. Innocence is no longer rare. It has ceased to exist. And suicide was rampant. In terms of the Jews religiously, they were monotheist one god, they were looking for a coming Messiah. They had all the Old Testament that told about Christ and His coming. They had the synagogue that was well established, which gave uh, the, apostles, the disciples and apostles places to preach when they would go into towns. But there was a hollowness they had in their religion. It was not satisfactory. It was not an intimacy with God. And all of these served as the perfect background for the true Messiah, for the truth to arrive. Coincidence? Hardly. These things are not a coincidence. It, didn't, it wasn't that Jesus happened to be born at a good time. There are uh, some 60 prophecies in the Old Testament that he fulfilled perfectly. No one could have done that deliberately or by accident. And so, what's it mean to us? I want to give you two things with this. What do we take away from this big delay? The fact that God, in His providence, is working His plan out for His people. We see that all through history. Now let's bring it home to our home. Think of your home, your situation. God in His providence is working out His plan in His children's lives. Now there's two things about that. One is when you hear that, you may think, well, I don't like what I see in God's plan. I don't like His plan. And that's the first thing we need to remember. It is sometimes more difficult to believe in God's providence because we want control. Or we, at any given moment, we might look at our circumstances and say, How does that fit with a good and a loving and a grace-filled God? So it's sometimes harder to believe in His providence, but ultimately it is more comforting to believe in God's providence. If God is not working out His plan for His people, if He is not in control, then you forget about prayer. Don't bother. It's useless if God's not in control. Facing tomorrow does not need to be like the Stoic that says, well, I'll I'll get through it. But instead, because God is in His providence working out His plan for His people, we can accept it as a child. Now, as a child, all of you were children at one point. There were things that your parents knew that were best that they could not have convinced you it was best for you. Until later you found out, it was best for me. And so, back to our passage as we are adopted as children, we can receive these circumstances as a child and sometimes we have just simply got to say, you know what, I don't get it, how He is working out His providence and His plan in my life. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I believe it. And I trust Him because this I know He is loving and full of grace and mercy. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Thank you, Lord, for your providential plan. Help us to receive it as a child, to believe it, and to be comforted by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.